0: Hello and welcome to Altamar, I'm Peter Schechter.
1: And I'm Moni Jensen. And Peter, if you would ask people to make a wish today, I'm going to wager that overwhelming numbers of humans are wishing for a vaccine that will prevent the spread of COVID-19. So let's talk about vaccines today. Hundreds of vaccines are being tested in different phases of developments and the consensus, especially lately among health experts, is that one or more of them may prove successful fairly soon. And I really, really share that wish.
0: Muni, well, we're not health professionals, so we're going to say right away that rather than giving you the science of vaccines, let's dive into the geopolitics of vaccines, the race for success, and what it means for countries that can distribute the magic bullet. We're going to talk about competition, cooperation, secrecy, and favoritism. We're going to talk about hoarding and picking favorites, and we'll discuss who the main players are and what they're betting on. And We'll be joined later by Lawrence Gostin. He's a health expert at Georgetown Law School and for the World Health Organization.
1: So, Peter, let's start with a couple of numbers just to frame this discussion. So, as of this recording, there are 140 vaccines at the preclinical level, roughly, roughly 30 in phases one and two, and three vaccines that have been headliners in phase three trials. So far, none has been approved for general use, although there's some rumblings about advances in at least one of them. So the front runners are a Sinovac from China, a collaboration between Oxford and AstraZeneca, and another third one from the University of Melbourne. And not far behind are other vaccines that are developed by either one or two partners from the US, India, Israel, and several Chinese companies in collaborations.
0: Muni, but it's good to remember that vaccine politics are really not exclusive to COVID. They've been around for a while. Global vaccination policies have created historical tensions among countries ever since the introduction of the small box vaccine in 1796. There are now numerous public and multinational agencies that create vaccine policy, but that tension hasn't really abated amongst the public voices. The subject is a recipe for conflict among individual rights and government policy, religious beliefs, privacy, ethical concerns, sovereignty, and global institutions versus national priorities. Today, these tensions include hacking threats and cyber attacks, accusations, existing in a world where nationalism is spreading as fast as the virus itself.
1: So roughly, specifically on COVID, there are at least three distinct geopolitical threats, and those are not the only ones, just the ones that we think are bigger. The first is the vaccine war itself. Second is the adequate distribution of an effective vaccine. And the third is misinformation and cyber terrorism.
0: Wait a I, I get that those are the threats, but doesn't it all reduce to sort of a single real fact that the vaccine war has become like the space race that we discussed in a recent episode, but with different actors and a different prize, it's become a struggle for global domination between the U S and China. And it's hard to tell who's going to end up taking the first step on the moon, so to speak.
1: You can say that Peter, but it is the U S that seems most determined to make this a controversy. President Donald Trump in pure campaign form, has used his political muscles to announce its withdrawal from the W H O call COVID the Chinese virus, plant distrust among the public about China's intentions. And of course, China's lack of transparency doesn't help. It does add to speculation and conspiracy theories. And it also undermines what are legitimate scientific efforts in both parts of the world. While public health specialists are working together, Politicians have continued to retrench, point fingers, and compromise the potential global benefits of an approved vaccine.
0: I, I don't know. That seems a little simple, Mooney. It, it's more than just about who steps on the vaccine moon. Once one of the frontrunners is approved, the question switches immediately to distribution. Who's going to get the vaccine first? It's expected that the country that developed it is going to want to use it first and its allies next, and while political enemies would be the last in line, in my view. In this equation, poor countries are especially vulnerable if they aren't clearly aligned. And as countries will inevitably be moved to take sides, organizations like the Gavi Vaccine Alliance, the Gates Foundation, the WHO, have tried to set up a framework to keep things fair and avoid this type of arbitrary behavior. And all those efforts are good, but it's hard to believe that they're going to be enough. And particularly, it's hard to believe that there's going to be enough enforcement to avoid improvised decisions.
1: And also these institutions, Peter, what can they do, WHO, GAVI, and others? How can they decide about internal distribution? So questions really remain about which segments of the population should have access first, and then for these choices, there is also no simple answer.
0: For all the supranational institutions, nationalism continues to be growing as the norm in response to this very global disease. Multilateralism and collective thinking appear absent in the COVID conversation, even though the behavior of each individual is mostly responsible for the catastrophe spread like the disease. And while most of the tensions between US and China, new actors like Israel or Russia or India are looking for space on the global leaders' table, and they're betting on the vaccine's approval by their own companies or coalitions as part of this strategy.
1: And then there's cyber terrorism which is so commonplace today in every sector and is now targeting vaccine manufacturers. Suspected hacking from Russia and China contribute to a climate of distrust and miscommunication. And already countries like the US, UK, Canada, and others have accused hackers from Russia are trying to steal a British vaccine and the US believes China's hacking American research so a lot of back and forth there Russia's response has been to deny the allegations and remind the world that the Russian vaccine is far into the pipeline so this brand of nationalism will only hurt the countries involved and obviously the community and hamper this warp speed of approval
0: and as if all that isn't enough misinformation through social media is yet another type of cyber threat Maybe it's a less sophisticated cyber threat, but it's not a less dangerous cyber threat. Fake news, fabrications, conspiracy theories about vaccine production are eroding the political will to find a way to stop the spread of this deadly virus, not to mention creating doubt about whether it's going to be safe to take the vaccine once we have one. A serious issue because unless a large majority of people take the vaccine, the herd immunity that's needed to stave off COVID-19 is going to be awfully difficult to reach.
1: But on the optimistic note, it's obvious the vaccine pipeline looks promising more than we expected on the scientific front. However, the political atmosphere is really full of traps. And to help us understand the risks and possible outlook for this global search, we've invited Professor Lawrence Gostin to Altamar. Lawrence Gostin is a director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law, and the founding O'Neill Chair in Global Health Law. He's a Professor of Medicine at Georgetown University and Professor of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the Director of the WHO Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law and has served on numerous expert advisory committees, including one on the Pandemic Influenza Preparedness Framework and reported on the lessons learned from the 2015 West Africa Ebola epidemic. Lawrence Gostin, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: Lovely to be with you. Thanks for having me, Muni.
1: Thank you. And uh, Dr. Gosson, there's been a lot of headlines in the past days and weeks about a clear front runner in the search for a vaccine. What can you tell us about these promising headlines that we've seen?
2: Well, uh, just this week, uh, there were two papers in The Lancet uh, Medical Journal um, uh, showing uh, that vaccine candidates, one in Oxford, England, and the other in Wuhan, uh, in China, um, had... um, in phase two trials, uh, were shown to be uh, safe um, and also showed that it provoked a significant immune response. Uh, That doesn't mean that uh, the immune response is necessarily protective against COVID-19. That will wait for phase three trials. um, And I'm happy to say that the Oxford Um, uh, vaccine candidate, um, is already in phase three trials, but we don't have uh, any published results. But it's taking place, you know, in countries like Brazil, where there's widespread outbreaks.
1: We have been talking today about the vaccine war, not in the health perspective, per se, because we're not experts like you are, but beyond the public health in the realm of politics, and specifically geopolitics. So coming back to the basics... Who are the main characters in the vaccine race in terms of countries, companies, collaborations, and where does each of them, I'm talking about the front runners, uh, stand in terms of approval and distribution at this point? Well, let me first say
2: this, that, you know, um, uh, in all my lifetime, I can't think of a a medical commodity that was as valuable as this one is to the world. And uh, it's, it's even more than the geopolitical struggle for the race to the moon you know, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, this is the, the stakes here are enormous. The three front runners are China, um, Europe, particularly uh, uh, England and Oxford, um, and the United States. Um, but there are other uh, uh, people in the race, um, in India, Russia, um, other countries that have really been um, trying to push this, but I would say those are the three front runners, um, and they're you know re- truly um, in a kind of geopolitical struggle with one another to do that. just um very, very recently, um President Trump announced that the u s. candidate you know that he had you know bought up you know large supplies of potential candidate uh, potential vaccines if and when it's shown to be safe and effective and so we're seeing a lot of vaccine nationalism already even you know months if not many many months um before we actually get a viable vaccine
0: that's a exact segue to the issues that i wanted to start bringing up which is this notion of vaccine nationalism and and let me begin by just setting the stage because you, you mentioned uh, the decision by President Trump, the tensions between China and the United States are growing every day, not only on the issue of, of vaccines, but on everything. And I guess what are the effect of those tensions on the global response to COVID and the development of this vaccine?
2: You know, I don't think it can be underestimated. I mean, um, th- the fallout um, between China and the United States and the global health world has been, uh, you know, cataclysmic. Um, President Trump, you know, deflecting blame away from the white house um, announced the withdrawal um, from the world health organization. So WHO itself has been put in the middle of China uh, and the United States um, in, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, which is, I think, in my view, uh, entirely uh, unforgivable. Um, so, you know, that, that's one, one aspect. Another is, is, you know, that the, uh, you know, American law enforcement has been accusing uh, Chinese hackers of hacking into um, American vaccine research, um, which I think is f- probably, in my view, fairly um, credible. Um, at the same time, you know what I think is going on is you have two strong men, um, uh, Xi Jinping and President Trump. Putin's in the mix here too, and he's been promising a vaccine by September, which is in, in, entirely <laughs> impossible to for me to see. Um, but between Xi Jinping and the President, um, this is a matter of, you know, personal, reputation but also the prowess, the technological prowess of their country. China's narrative is, is that you know it used to be behind in science and technology but it's now uh, equal to the United States if not greater. And so the national pride in getting a Chinese vaccine will be enormous. Uh, and Trump feels the same way about the United States that he's not going to be outdone by China as a result. Um, you 've got two really harmful problems. Uh, the first problem is is that we, we may rush ethical corners or even put out a vaccine before it 's fully safe and effective um, and then the second is is that we may see countries and we 're seeing it already in the United States of hoarding you know of keeping the vaccine for themselves and you know if you think about the political fallout, just imagine this. Um, a year from now, you have a world where you've got China or the United States or another high-income country that is largely protected from a devastating pandemic like COVID-19, whereas people are dying, and there are hundreds of thousands in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and other parts of the world. Think about what it would do to unravel the world order international cooperation, um, diplomacy, um, or even security with terrorism and things like that. Um, I think the United States and China are playing a very dangerous game and it's going to come back to bite them.
0: I'm impressed by what you say. And, and so I'm try- let's move to the practical consequences of all of that. I mean, isn't the risk is that whoever approves first is going to have an arbitrary distribution system that is going to be based on political alliances only?
2: Well, you know, that's the risk. That's exa- that is exactly the risk. You know, I think that if it were a European candidate like the one in the UK, um, there's more likely to be um, uh, a, a, a at least a reasonable fair share uh, of uh, a distribution to other places in the world. I know already that um, the uh, company that's um, uh, working with the UK and Oxford has said that they're not going to make a profit. Um, and uh, although the UK has gobbled up a lot of the vaccine, uh, they've promised that they're going to really ramp up the manufacturing. They're starting to do that now and send it out. I'm not at all as sure about China and the United States. Yes, I think they w- I think they will share, but only after their own. Societies have been fulfilled. And then, you know, when they share, they may very well share based upon, you know, the influence that they can get or the allies that they have um, or the trade deals or other deals that they might get. That's no way to do this. In my view, um, unlike anything else I've seen before in my lifetime, a COVID vaccine is a global public good. And that means that you know no company profits from it no country owns it uh, no entrepreneur or scientist has intellectual property um protection to it and that it is affordable and accessible on an equal basis everywhere in the world and that means we need well over 6 billion doses assuming we only need one dose to be effective it may be two or even three doses to be effective. And so we've got a long way to go. We should be planning for equity now before we, have a, before we have a
0: so-called winner. Well, so let's talk about that. What When you say planning for equity, how should that decision be made? Which country gets first? Which populations get first? Which segments and subpopulations go? Who makes that decision?
2: Well, in the current world, no one. In the current world, it's, you know... Um, you know, eat or be eaten. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's you know, it's it's the it's the most powerful, the the richest, um, the places where the vaccine is actually manufactured. It shouldn't be that way. Um, so, what are the options? You know, um, in an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, uh, a number of weeks ago, m- uh, my colleagues and I uh, recommended um, that there should be. We should plan for equity now, and that where countries now have an incentive. China and the United States both have incentives to plan for equity now. Once they get the vaccine, they have no incentive. Um, and so, we recommended um, that it be uh, an equity plan be developed under the auspices of the G seven and the G twenty. I've also thought, in my own personal view, um, is is that the World Health Organization is the appropriate venue um, for equitable sharing. And that would be um, what I would recommend, that they um, were the ones that brought the global health community together and ensured that we had really good um, uh, plans for equitable access throughout the world.
0: And just let me be, be clear, is the first vaccine gonna be it or is it most probable that we're gonna have an American vaccine, a European vaccine, and a Chinese vaccine? With a difference of a few months here and there.
2: Yes, great question, and you're absolutely right. I do not foresee that one vaccine will be on the market, nor that one vaccine should be on the market, because we're going to want to do two things. We first we want to make sure that vaccines are um, studied, and so if you've got a number on the market, you can. Do what they call um, post-marketing surveillance to make sure if they're safe and effective, we can see which is which is the most effective and safest of all, among the candidate among the vaccines that are that are marketed. But secondly, um, uh, we're going to we're going to have scarcity, um, and uh, we want to have less scarcity. And the more vaccines you have that are effective, the less scarcity there'll be. So yes, I hope and I do expect. Ah, uh, there not to be one COVID vaccine, but several uh, based upon different kinds of technologies.
1: And how effective are institutions like the Vaccine Alliance, Gavi, and the Gates Foundation and other multilateral efforts to produce an orderly distribution of vaccine? Are they going to be able to work with the WHO or are they really, do, do they have muscle? The Gates Foundation has fi- financial muscle. <laughs> Basically,
2: what they, the Gates Foundation has been and should be doing is giving its money to the Gavi Alliance and the Gavi Alliance should then be able to procure the vaccine at an affordable cost and then uh, distribute it um, to low and middle income countries. That's the way it, it should work. But politically, they don't have that kind of um, uh, ability to, to make sure there's an equitable sharing, and particularly if you see vaccine nationalism.
1: So um talking about nationalism with your the political side of the legal hat so we, we've heard a lot about China and the US and the whole geopolitical tension and but there's also companies in Israel Britain India Russia that are developing their own vaccines are there going to be new tension points that you see with so many actors in the race
2: well you know we, we may you know it really depends upon um, the way that the countries that do produce the vaccine about you know what they're uh, viewpoint is, I mean, we the closest analogy we have is during the H1N1 pandemic. Uh, President Obama was in the office uh, of the presidency then. And at that time, WHO did broker a deal, which they haven't been able to do now with this rise of populism, um, for some sharing. So countries agreed that they would give at least a certain supply of their vaccines uh, to WHO for distribution—a small amount, but some. Even a president like President Obama, who's a who's a globalist um, and understands uh, issues of equity and justice, even he had, while having promised the vaccine, when there was a big scare about influenza H1N1 in the United States, he then really used the supplies for his own country. Once it became clear that it wasn't as serious a disease as we thought, and we had an oversupply of vaccine, he then gave to other countries. And we might see something like that playing out here too, but it depends on the country. I I worry if if another strongman like Russia um, gets it, you know, Israel is a, you know, more of a kind of liberal democracy, but they do have a leader there that uh, that worries me greatly. India has been and has a reputation for being kind of the um, the supplier of affordable and accessible medications for the world. Um, so I trust, you know, the generic industry in, in India to be Um, more globally aware. So it really depends upon the country. I mean, you you know, not everybody is, you know, thumps their chest and say, me first, which I regard as selfish. Um, And I think the White House is almost the definition of selfishness. Um, But other global leaders are not like that at all.
0: You um, had earlier mentioned the issue of cyber attacks and, Who's behind them, and what are they looking for?
2: Right. I mean, who's behind them? What they're looking for? Whether they're actually effective are all pretty much unknowns. We don't know that for sure. Um, but this is what we think. We think there's some, you know, quite sophisticated hackers in China. That probably are in Russia as well. That are um, hacking into uh, the um, into. Uh, uh, vaccine researchers in the United States trying to get a leg up on the technology. By all accounts, they're doing it for a dual purpose. One is to enrich themselves, but also um, at the service of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, So I think, uh, you know, it's to me, it's hard to believe um, that high-level political leaders aren't aware of this um, on, on both... Hacker side and and those that are being hacked. And so, you know, it's troubling. You know, how effective it is or really whether it's going to provide any advantage for them, you know, we don't know. The United States, for a long time, not just in the hacking realm, but is also um, the Trump administration has been quite concerned with Chinese uh, students, uh, graduate students in particular in science in the United States, you know, fearing that they. That they are stealing secrets. I'm sure some of them are, but most of them are not. And they're here in the United States as really good, you know, uh, students that are benefiting America and the world. Um, uh, and but that's something that the NIH has been uh, wrestling with for some time. And it's not just with COVID, it's you know, cancer and a whole range of other research activities that we're engaged in. I'm on the National Cancer Advisory Board appointed by president
0: obama and i've seen it on my own board and let me go back again to something else that you said which worried me and i wanted to ask which was at the beginning you talked about cutting corners how this race is leading to a potential scientific cutting of corners yeah could you point out what that could be and
2: yeah i mean we're already seeing it frankly um you know so in china for example um we've had we've had evidence that uh uh, researchers are, vaccine researchers, are are using themselves as a guinea pig or using their students as a guinea pig. We've also seen that, you know, uh, people, uh, you know, the military or other um, international workers uh, in China are being asked to consent um, to uh, experimental vaccinations. um before they've been approved and and shown safe. And I can't imagine that you could have an appropriate consent about that. The third thing, which is much more nuanced and difficult and something that's really tearing apart the vaccine ethics uh, community uh, around the world, is the idea of whether or not you have what are called so-called challenge trials. Um, Challenge trials uh, are when you actually Uh, get a healthy uh, young participant and you would inject that person with um, SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID, um, and you see whether or not the vaccine was effective um, in in those uh, that are challenged. There's a huge global debate about whether or not, but that is ethical. You know, in some ways you could Get you know consent, and you could monitor young, otherwise healthy people, um, and uh, you probably get a vaccine shown to be safe much sooner than you could otherwise. On the other hand, you know you're exposing these individuals to risk, and you're actually infecting them with a potentially deadly virus Um, uh, that is really concerned many people in the community. So there there are many hurdles, and then the final one, of course, is just the. The one that we rush to too much and we get the vaccine out and maybe it causes harm like the dengue vaccine did, uh, making uh, COVID even worse than it was before. I hope that wouldn't happen. But when you have a program like the United States, which the president calls Operation Warp Speed, there's a lot of subtle cues to actually cut corners.
1: That's very, very concerning. And uh, I was just about to pivot to something a little more optimistic and is the kind of the the positive rumor that uh, even as political leaders are infighting, scientists are actually undergoing this really interesting, unprecedented exchange of information and huge collaboration. Are you hopeful enough to think that this collaboration can supersede all the political agendas that are taking place at the same time? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't
2: say that it's superseding it, but I would say that it is is heartwarming and it's true. Um, there's been an unprecedented sharing. You know, the you know of, of all the things China did wrong at the beginning of the uh, the outbreak in Wuhan, and it did many things wrong. I won't get into all of them. Uh, it did um, fairly soon after the first reports sequence the genome of. Uh, of the virus. Uh, And that was shared widely around the world since then. There've been a lot of sharing of, of genome sequencing Um, some, not as much as I'd like sharing of the actual virus samples itself um, because you need them from different parts of the world. Look to see whether they're mutating and how they're acting. Um, But yes, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see scientists to scientists, scientific community coming together, understanding that this is a global public good. And, you know, there's there's a cost to the scientists. You know, scientists, you know, they want to get a Nobel Prize. They want to be the first one to publish in a major medical journal. And for them to, to willingly share their early data before it's published, which they have done admirably, is a lesson for our political leaders. Um, and I hope they get that lesson.
0: Professor, let me ask you one last question, which is you've been so kind with your time and it's been fascinating. But we've seen the explosion of controversy about vaccination, any vaccination and its relationship to different childhood problems. And something which was, you know, certainly when I grew up, nobody was doubting, doubting that. And the advent of social media and conspiracy theories. Do you fear that even though we have a vaccination, that there could be some type of mass hesitation? in trying to get to it, and therefore this rush is going to have actually a boomerang effect?
2: Yeah, I know I've looked at the, you know, I'm doing a study now that we're going to publish with a group of uh, uh, international public health, global health leaders on this very subject. You know, there is, I can, you know, a significant problem of what the WHO calls vaccine hesitancy Or, what you know, colloquially we call you know, anti vaxxers. We've seen it with measles and other childhood diseases. And early polls, particularly in the United States, have shown that a significant number of the public would not get a COVID vaccine, and an even higher number would wait before getting the COVID vaccine. And so, we're recommending that there be a you know, a major public health campaign to assure uptake of this vaccine, because you need sufficient uptake of the vaccine to get what we call herd immunity. It's really critical that, you know, we get, you know, very high levels of public support for COVID-19 vaccine, and we're not seeing that now yet. And particularly if there are worries about cutting corners or there are safety concerns that might just feed into vaccine conspiracy theories about the government trying to harm them. Um, We do know that, you know, as a general rule, vaccines are the greatest public health achievement of the 20th century. They're the safest, most effective medical um, resource that we've ever had um, in science before, or probably ever will. And so we really have to make sure that there's high public confidence and use um, for a COVID-19 vaccine when and if it comes to the market.
0: Professor Gossin, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar today. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. Peter, that was an outstanding conversation. And I think it shed light on a lot of the subjects that we everybody's very curious about. But I want to ask you a question. After listening to the professor, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about the next few months?
0: No, I'm actually more optimistic. I mean, with all the cautions and and uh hesitations that he has and worries about the world and politics and political leaders i do get the impression that there's going to be multiple vaccines out there relatively soon certainly the top three but maybe even more and others and it just seems to me that increasingly we're going to live in a world with a proliferation of of vaccines you know i can't speak to the fact that they're all going to work but I am optimistic that, that this race for a vaccine is going to also lead to a lot of people putting out vaccines.
1: So I hope you're right this time. I am, on the contrary, a little bit pessimistic. I think things are going to get Not worse. Not
0: surprising, Mooney.
1: <laughs> I think they're going to get worse before they get better, unfortunately. And it seems like these very well-meaning scientists doing such great work and collaborating and, and engaging are making tremendous progress, but there's, there's this counterforce of countries. And then there are the institutions that are there that are supposed to be there to monitor both distribution and security and the, the, the scientific elements of this are not there. So really there's no framework. It's basically the scientists versus the politicians. And we know how that goes.
0: I, I guess I would add one more thing in which I hesitatingly admit you're right, which is <laughs> that... I do think that for major nations that have the wherewithal to produce this vaccine, it seems to me that sort of there'll be something out there relatively soon. My worry is for the hundreds of millions of people who don't reside in one of these nations, mainly in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, that will be on the back end of a waiting list to acquire this. And that is extremely worrisome particularly as we see a world in which the richer countries return to normal and poorer countries just go on and on. With that uplifting thought, see you next time. Thank you for joining us on Altamar.